pastor would rather not preach on, this is perhaps one of the greatest of all. And uh, I think for me in particular, uh, even more so, because I have views on this topic that are different and stricter than most tend to have. Um, I have undenied about how to teach this passage for the entirety of the last couple of weeks, and um, I've come to some convictions of how to present it, um, which I will speak about in a moment. But by way of introduction, simply let me say this. The longer and better known passage concerning this topic that has a lot of commonalities is Matthew 19, which is the passage that Brian read for us this morning. The one thing that we are learning in the book of Matthew is the absolute essential nature of context. Context, context, context. You have to know who's he speaking to, what's the context, what's going on, you know, which covenant are we under, what's the state of Israel. You need to know all of these details to know what's being said. Because we as Christians, we have a tendency to think that we are the center of the entire universe and everything revolves around us. And we engage in this kind of form of interpretation that is being coined narcissus, whereby we look at the Bible and we say, this is mine and everything applies to me. And so we jump into a passage and we take a text and we say, oh, that sounds nice, I'll have that. And we just apply it to ourselves. And one thing that just comes up again and again and again and again in Matthew is we cannot do that. So I think that it it is important for us as we begin today to note that this topic of divorce and remarriage comes up twice in the book of Matthew. Twice. And there are some elements of context that are the same in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. In Matthew 5 and 19, both passages Jesus is speaking in a book written to Jewish people in the context of the Jewish community, in the context of the impact of Pharisaic Judaism in that community, in the context of the misinterpretation of the law by that Pharisaic community, and it's being preached to people who are all under the old covenant Because in both of those passages, Jesus has not yet died. So there's a lot of commonality between them. But there is one key distinction between Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, and that is this. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has a message to the entirety of Israel, which is this. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within your reach. And there are all sorts of implications in that statement that we've talked about them all. The implication of the fact that just because you're a Pharisee, just because you're a Jew, doesn't mean you have an automatic right to be in the kingdom. You actually have to repent. 
There are other implications, which is even if you're not a Jew, even if you're somebody who's maybe, you know, a little bit on the, the less savory side of life, if you repent, there's a place for you in the kingdom of heaven. And so there is this offer. There is this offer to the nation of Israel. Jesus is saying, I am your king. I am your Messiah. Repent and turn to me. Turn from this misrepresentation of Moses that you see in the religion of the day and come to me. Turn aside from your sin and the kingdom of heaven is yours. And all of that changes in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we have the very center of the book. And what happens there is the official rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees and by the nation of Israel. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus begins teaching in parables. And he tells them why he's teaching in parables. And I'm paraphrasing very loosely here. But he essentially says, we don't want them to hear because they might understand. And if they understand, they might repent. And we don't want that. Can you see the astonishing contrast? That on the one hand, Jesus is saying, come on, repent, come to the kingdom. Come on, repent, come to the kingdom. And then Matthew 12, everything changes. They say, no, you are not the king. It is not your kingdom to give. You've got it wrong. We're right, you're wrong. How do you do these amazing things? I guess you're just possessed by the devil himself. And Jesus says, fine, we're done. You're under judgment. There will be nothing more for you. And when people come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. This offer is not for Israel anymore. They were offered their king and they rejected their king. So much so that on Palm Sunday, when Israel lays down those palm branches and says, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, messianic Christ. Jesus weeps over them. The offer has gone. That's the, that's the nutshell of the book of Matthew. So when we come to Matthew 19, they're trying to trick Jesus, and we're at a time when we are moving very close towards the new covenant, and there are implications in Matthew 19. And I think Matthew 19 is a passage where when we're talking about divorce and remarriage in the church, all the details that we want and all the application that we need, we're going to find in Matthew 19. But we're not in Matthew 19. We're just not there yet. And I, this last week, was planning on preaching a sermon, and I realized quite late in the day, there was a danger of me essentially preaching Matthew 19 by default. And I don't want to do that, because I'm not in Matthew 19, I'm in Matthew 5. And the most important thing is context, context, context. So I'm going to try and be really disciplined, and I'm aware that what I say, actually more to the point, what I don't say, will, will, will lend itself to people saying, well, what about this and what about that? And that's why we have Sunday night, so that we can fill in those gaps and answer those questions. But I really want to stick to point today, 
and see this, these verses in context. Because what is the point of these two verses? The point of it in this context is, Jesus is saying to those who have repented, you have been taught a way of living and applying Mosaic law that is totally wrong. It, it's, it's a way of, of, of being religious where you go about and you're checking boxes... And in checking those boxes, you're completely ignoring the righteous requirements of the law. And the result is, is that you end up with all of your boxes checked and you can say, look, I keep the law. And in reality, you're terribly unrighteous and you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And you've never repented of your sin. And you don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. And you're just a charlatan. That's the context of this passage. So I am going to try and to some degree, for the, for the most part, limit what we're saying on this subject to the context of the Pharisees. But that isn't to say that we won't have application for us. It might just not be as specific as we can be in chapter 19. So all of that said, let's pull back to verse 27 so we get our context. Very important. So, you've heard it said, I told you this and I'll tell you this every week while we go through these passages, you have heard it said is a specific uh, terminology, an idiom that is used, and it is referring to the oral law, in other words, it's referring to what the Pharisees taught as opposed to what Moses taught. So when it says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, although we have it in capital letters in our Bibles, I would argue that Jesus is not quoting Moses here. He is simply referring to the Pharisaical interpretation of Moses, which was pretty much this. As long as you don't sleep with somebody else who's not your wife, you're good. But I've done this. Did you sleep with someone who wasn't your wife? No, you're good. That's the only requirement. That's it. Box checked, we're done, we're good, fine. But, Jesus says in verse 28, I've said to you that everyone who looks to the woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We spoke about this last time at length, we're not going to go and do that again. Suffice to say that if there is a lustfulness within us, if we are desiring other people, if we are focusing on other people, if we are uh, dwelling on other people, then we have done the same sin as adultery in our hearts, if not in the flesh. And that's the, that's the issue that Jesus is speaking of here. That we need to have pure hearts. Righteousness is an issue of the heart. That we're not here simply to check boxes. And Jesus emphasized his point incredibly strongly. He made the two parallel statements concerning right eyes and right hands. And he says that it's better that they are chopped off and plucked out than for you to have your entire body thrown into hell. Something that Jen referenced to me last week, which I thought was helpful, more helpful the week before, but was, uh, was that there is perhaps an echo here to the book of Judges and Samson. In the book of Judges, there is this reoccurring theme. And that reoccurring theme is, the, the book ends with it in the very last verse, we, we've read it recently in our Bible reading plan, that people did what was right in their own eyes. Samson took a wife he shouldn't have taken from the Philistines. Why? She was good in his eyes. 
And Samson spends his whole life taking whatever he wants, liking whatever he sees. What does God do to him at the end? Plucks his eyes out. And it is only when his eyes have been removed that he finally serves God with the whole of his heart. So is this hyperbole? I think it is. But you can see it being literally applied in scripture. And it is literally true. It is better to avoid hell and not have any part of you hinder you being in there. Though I don't think that that's the point being made. Because, of course, the issue is that it's one of the heart. I think Jesus' point is this. If the problem really was simply a part of your body, you can remove parts of your body. I think the ultimate implication here, by the way, is I think that there's three examples and one of them isn't said, and one of it's implied. Because they had a methodology in the ancient world of removing parts of someone's body that meant that lust was no longer an issue for them. And when the king wanted to have men around his harem serving them without any concerns about them lusting after them, he had eunuchs. I don't think I need to fill in the gaps, do I? You know what I'm talking about. I think that's the ultimate implication. Better to, and by the way, that word eunuch is used in Matthew 19, the passage that Brian read. It is, it is certain, and by the way, I think Matthew 19 is referencing back to Matthew 5. When we get to Matthew 19, we can refer back to verses 29 and 30 when Jesus mentions eunuch. But what we shouldn't be doing is looking forward to Matthew 19 when we're here because we haven't got there yet. But when you get there, you've had five, so you can go back, but not the other way around. But nonetheless, there is an implication, I think, here of that. You need to take this seriously. And the double repetition of hell is there echoing the hell that was mentioned regarding the previous command that the Pharisees butchered to show that the issue of sinning in our hearts may not be serious enough for you to go before a court. Lusting may not be serious enough, I use the term loosely, for you to uh, end up in the divorce proceedings, but it's serious enough for you to go to hell. Never forget. So, 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 now we come to our verses. And it's important as we come here, we see that this is not a new section. There are sections that are marked out clearly. Verse 21, you have heard. Then we had last week starting. Verse 27, you have heard. We're going to have a new section next week. Again, verse 33, you have heard. Verse 38, you have heard. And then verse 43, you have heard. They are your sections. What do we have in verse 31? Do we have another section? No. It says, now it was said. 
This is not a new section. We are still in the section on adultery. And why that is important will become clear in a minute. Okay? But we're still in the section of adultery. He's told us that if we lust in our hearts that we're worthy of hell. He's told us that it's better for us that we lose body parts than we somehow mess up on this issue. Lust is something that has to be resolved and dealt with. That it's not okay. This is an issue of importance with regards to righteousness. And he is going to continue to talk about the outworking of the sin of adultery. Make sure you've got that in your heads. Now he says, it was said, because this was not, you have also heard, he is not referencing here simply the Pharisaic interpretation. He's, but nevertheless, in verse 32, there is still the but. There's the contrast, but I say to you. In other words, I think the point here is that in one sense it's dissimilar than the previous ones. In another sense, it's similar. It's, it's similar in the sense that here is something presented, and now, but I'm going to tell you something different. But what is different, what is dissimilar here, is that rather than simply saying, well, the Pharisees say this, they do, they say that you shall not commit adultery, that's what they're saying. He says there's something that was actually said that's relevant to this whole argument. And so I think at this point, because it's not another you have heard, he's actually referencing Moses. So you know what we're going to do? We've got to find out what Moses said. So we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 24. Because I know that when you got up this morning, you were like, I cannot wait to get to church and have a look at Deuteronomical divorce laws. That's, that's what I'm itching to get in my system today. But this is part of the hard graft of being a Christian and handling the word correctly. Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount. We all agree. It's one of the most glorious passages in the Bible. People have recognized that for centuries. And we want to understand that. We want to understand it in context. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, which, by the way, is the book of the Bible that Jesus quotes the most. And we need to understand it. So hopefully you're there now. Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, I'm going to read to you. I nearly had Brian read this this morning, but I thought that really isn't going to help anybody get into the service this morning. So let me just deal with it now. Uh, I'm going to read this first uh, four verses to you. And I want to then explain it. it is, and I'm going to say from the off, this is a difficult passage. Not pretending otherwise, but we'll unpack it together. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house. And she goes out of his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh, 
And you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. All right. Tricky, tricky, tricky. Lots to unpack. Let's try and deal with it. First things first. Where are we in the Bible? We're in Deuteronomy. You just told me. Thank you. Well done. You're paying attention. We're in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is part of Mosaic law. It's part of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, the Torah. It is uh, contains all of these laws. The laws were God's laws with Israel. Many of those laws are to do with the functioning of society. It was not merely religious laws. It was laws for the civil society and, you know, government as we would call it. And there were all sorts going on. And we know that the law came to an end with the death of Christ. So the first thing I want you to remember when we read this passage is that none of it applies to you. Doesn't mean we can't learn from it. It just means that this, this verse is no longer in effect. But it was in effect at the time of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Pharisees know this law, and they use this law. And we need to find out why. So first of all, we need to understand the passage ourselves. That's the tricky bit. So let's try that. The situation is presented as a man takes a wife and marries her. You think, well, that's easy enough. No, actually, that's the hardest bit in the entire passage. For multiple reasons. Okay? A man takes a wife and marries her is actually quite a difficult expression. And if you've been with me so far in Matthew, you'll understand part of the reason why. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 1, Mary is pregnant with Jesus and she's betrothed to be married to Joseph. What does the Bible call her? His wife. No, 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 I just read that bit. He's betrothed to be married. Yeah, 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 she's his wife. No, 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 we, we, there's, a, there's a problem here, we're not understanding. And part of it is, is that we in our society, in the world today, we have a social uh, procedure for most of the world, most of the Western world at least, whereby people do the Samson thing, she looks good in my eyes, and we start dating. And then we get to know someone through dating, and the extent to how well you get to know them depends on how, you know, the subculture and uh, how righteous you are in your heart. And you get to know a person a bit better, and at a point in time, you make this commitment, I will marry you, let's plan a wedding, and so you have this thing that we call engagement. And for many, particularly in Christian circles, engagement's a fairly solemn thing. There's a commitment. And particularly in America, people like doing photo shoots and weird things like that, you know. And, uh, and there's big announcements and, you know, very strange to me coming from England, but we're kind of picking up on that now. But, you know, you have this whole thing and there's going to be a wedding, we're engaged. But then other people, they get engaged and they're like, so when are you getting married? I don't know, I don't know. It's just the next stage of... We don't want to be really committed, but she's getting antsy. I better put a ring on it. You know, it's just a, like a more serious commitment. So engagement today is this weird thing. Depends on your subculture. Can be pretty committed. Would definitely have a wedding. I, I, I advise people in Christian circles, if you're engaged, you make that marriage soon. Soon, soon. Never over a year. 
preferably less than half of that. How long does it take to organise a wedding? Got lots of vacancies. These, this Saturday's free, this Saturday's free, that Saturday's free. They're all these Saturdays are free. Let's just get on with this. Let's do this. You know? Why? Because we know the heart of man. And we know the, the, the propensity to temptation. And we want to try and preserve purity. So I always encourage a short one. But some people, you know, you get people come along and you say, oh, how, how long have you been engaged? Oh, about six years. You're like, okay, well, you haven't walked in purity. I can tell you that now. Don't even know anything else about your life. And you, I can tell you, you haven't walked in purity. Just because I'm not an idiot, not because I'm a mind reader. So it is, it's such a varied thing. But in, in, the, in the Old Testament times, under the Jewish subculture, betrothal was such a serious commitment that you had to have a divorce to end it. And so Joseph is betrothed to Mary. They are going to be married, but they're not married. So when she shows up pregnant, we have a problem. Because they're not married. But yet she is his wife. And now that she's been found to, you know, she's pregnant. He's going to issue a certificate of divorce. Why? Because he's a righteous man. This is going to help us unpack a lot of that. So as I say, this first phrase is tricky because it says if a man takes a wife and marries her, is the taking of the wife equal to the marrying or is he taking a wife and then he's marrying her? Okay? And it happens. That phrase, and it happens, really to me is the crux of this passage. If you just read that passage, what, is it, what does it say to you? How do you understand that? What's, what's the immediate thing? Because does it mean that a, a guy takes his wife, Jewish culture, betrothal, here he is, he's, got, he's now got his woman. Remember, in, in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for wife is not a distinct word from the word woman. He takes his woman. I've now got my, my girl. You know? He's got his woman. And now he marries her. And it happens that he finds... No, she or she finds no favour in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. So when did he find that? Well, I've been married to her for 25 years... And I just found this thing that doesn't please me. I don't think that's what the passage is talking about, even remotely. The way that I naturally read this passage is one whereby it's talking about somebody who has a wife through betrothal and it comes to the wedding. And and what would he have seen of his wife beforehand? What would he have seen of her before the wedding? Do you remember Joseph, um, sorry, just Jacob, Leah and Rachel getting married to the wrong person because she was behind a veil? They, they weren't making out on the couch, put it that way, right? So, so what we need to understand is, is that they would have seen very little of this person beyond a sort of formal social gathering. Courting, dates in public places might be a more modern equivalent. So he discovers at the time of them actually getting married that there's something about her that wasn't as advertised 
and it falls into the realm of indecent. That's the situation. I don't see how you can take this passage and say, well, you know what, I've been married for 20 years and she's changed a bit in the last few years and now there's something indecent in her that wasn't there before. I don't think the passage is talking about that. I think it's talking about the situation where somebody gets married and finds out that this person isn't as pure as they might be. And I have good reason to believe that because that is part of the context of Deuteronomy. There is an entire section in chapter 22. Look at 22 and verse 13. If a man takes a wife and goes into her, so they're now married and they've um, that the marriage has been um, has been officially begun, and he then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds. Now that's that's even more vague than 24, but it becomes clearer because the passage goes on and he is publicly charging her with shameful deeds, saying, verse 17, "I did not find your daughter a virgin." In other words, I got married to this woman and now that I'm married to her and now that I've been into her, now that we've consummated the marriage, it's clear. And by the way, the specifics here, we're going to have to just not be entirely sure on whether there were elements that were sort of spiritual that had some sort of, you know, I don't know, that was... We're back in the days of the human and thumin and stuff, or whether it's simply a case of, you know, girls didn't play rough and tumble and go horse riding and things like that much anymore, and there perhaps was an expectation of bleeding on the wedding night or something like that. That seems to be part of the evidence. There's a reference a little bit later on in this passage to the showing the garments. But the long and short of it is that we have an entire half of a chapter in Deuteronomy 22 that's dealing with a guy who gets married and there is a presumption that that girl is going to be a virgin. And if there is evidence which he wouldn't be aware of until they actually consummate the marriage that he has been hard done by, he then makes a charge against her against the father who who sold. I mean, it'd be like it'd be like a a, um, a shop, a store today selling you something that wasn't as advertised. You know, this product is faulty. That's essentially what he's doing. He's charging the father, and the result of it is that this man will be shamed if his accusation is found to be false. But if it's found to be true then she will be stoned to death. She will die, verse 21, because she has committed a disgraceful act in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Maybe we should reinstitute that in Christian churches. Quite quite amazing for us in our era to hear that. But that's it. Pure, sexual purity was so important. So important. So for me to say in chapter 24, hey, this seems to be talking about that kind of situation, is exactly what this context of this part of Deuteronomy is about. We've just had half a chapter of that. So why have we just had half a chapter in chapter 22 that's talking about 
hey, this girl isn't as pure as she should be. Why do we need it again in chapter 24? Haven't we dealt with that? There's two distinctions in 24. First of all, chapter 24 isn't really talking about what happens to that man or to that girl at that time. It's talking about what happens in the event of a remarriage. Look at the passage goes on. Verse 20, chapter 24. It happens that she finds no favour in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. Now, I'm... I'm really trying to be careful here. I don't want to preach Matthew 19. Suffice to say, there is no command to put a certificate of divorce in her hand. We know that that is not required because chapter 22 tells us that he can charge her and if she's guilty, she's going to die. Do you see now why? Joseph is called a righteous man for seeking to quietly divorce Mary because he had two choices. He could have charged publicly. I have been cheated here. How dare you do this to me? Mary is a harlot. And Mary, I mean, and he knows nothing of the, the incarnation at this point, right? What would the result be of that? There's no question in his mind of the outcome of any investigation. She's freaking pregnant. She will be stoned to death. So what does he do? He says, let's do this quietly. Let's let her move on. And there was a practice in the society. Again, Moses... And this is where I'm just itching into Matthew 19 a little bit. Moses said, Jesus says that Moses allowed this. He allowed it. And the reasons why are in Matthew 19, and we'll leave that for Matthew 19. But Moses kind of allowed it. It wasn't a charge, but it was allowed. And why would somebody do this rather than make the charge and have a person put to death? And the answer is is that sometimes I think the, the, it isn't definitive. Sometimes um, you, don't want the, you, know, you don't want that outcome. There doesn't seem in chapter 22 to be a command that you have to do that charge. You have to make that accusation. And so there was this societal allowance. Again, Moses didn't give them that allowance, but they kind of allowed it, whereby, oh gosh, this wasn't what I was promised we will issue a certificate of divorce. And he puts it in a hand and he sends her out of his house. Can I just make one comment on this at this point? I don't think that Deuteronomy 24 is talking about the modern concept of divorce. I think it's talking about the modern concept of annulment. In other words, what is an annulment legally? A person has legally gotten married and then legally that is undone as if it never happened. Because not everything was as it was presented. This is annulment. This is annulment. And in that situation, there is a hypothetical, she goes out, she gets married to somebody else, and then that marriage comes to an end. Maybe maybe it ends super, super quickly. 
the, the, the example given is there's another divorce certificate, i.e. another annulment. So she gets married, I'm not having you. She gets married again, first night, I'm not having you either. In other words, really quickly, she's been moved on. Or, other end of the extreme, notice there's two extremes in this chapter, he dies. He lives to a ripe old age and he dies. In either situation, whether it's super quick or super long, in either situation, she is not permitted to go back to the previous husband. That's what this command is about. So there's two distinctions. The main passage on divorce, oh sorry, the main passage on annulment is chapter 22. But chapter 24 has two specific distinctions. Number one, that there is the option of a certificate of divorce as opposed to killing the person. And secondly, that if that does then happen, there is a certificate of divorce. Oh, you're going to have a divorce, are you? Well, that was never part of the plan. All right, if you're going to have a divorce, if you're going to have an annulment, you don't just get to go back. And guys... This is going to sound weird to you. I was reading, uh, I was reading some Jewish commentaries this week, which will give you a completely different perspective to Christian commentaries. And they, they seem fascinated with Islam and Islamic interpretations of, the, of these kind of aspects of life. But under certain parts of Islam, there is what is called an enjoyment marriage. Where a person is like, oh darn it, I can't commit adultery because the Quran says I can't, but what I could do is I could quickly divorce my wife, go and marry this harlot down the street, have a bit of fun, just for a night, then divorce that one, and then go back again and remarry my wife. You think that's ridiculous. That happens. And Mosaic law is basically, this command here, though it might not seem it at first, is a protection to women in two ways. Number one, we don't have to have no, we don't have to have a fault. We don't have to just say, you are the wicked harlot, you're the sinner, you should be killed. Life's a little bit more complicated than that, so we're going to allow this scenario whereby you don't die. But secondarily, if you are now passed off by your husband, because you know, ladies, it's, it's, it's in that society more so than, far more so than today, these ladies had very few rights, and if a man wanted to take advantage of her, he could. In other words, Okay, it's the wedding night. Nah, you don't look as good naked as I thought. I won't have you. Indecent! A certificate of divorce and annulment was a protection to her that she could safely go on her way and that she could get married, she could have a life, she could get on, and the fact that this guy treated her so badly isn't going to hinder that. But... In having this rule, it means that some guy can't just get rid of her on a whim and then she's, she's forced to go back to him somehow. No, 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 no. You want to get rid of that woman? No sort of, well, I kind of divorced her and I'm kind of marrying this one and I'm kind of, no, you're not kind of anything. 
You want to leave this woman. Was there something indecent? Was there something not right? And it written down. Written down. And once it's written down, what do we do? We have evidence. Proof. And now that means he can't have her back. That's what this law is all about. Now I think we understand Deuteronomy 24. And you're like, that's great, but that doesn't really help me with the Pharisees in Jesus' time at all. All right, let's unpack it a bit more. Look at what Jesus quotes. Jesus says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, so the focus here that Jesus is doing is on this woman being sent away... And when she is sent away, she has the certificate of divorce. What was Moses doing in Deuteronomy 24? He was protecting the woman from false claims that would have her killed. And he was protecting the woman from an abusive husband. That is predominantly what's going on in Deuteronomy 24. And yet, and this, this is where we start to get to application, friends. Look at, if you were to, um, if you were to look at Deuteronomy 24 at first glance, a man takes a wife, marries her, he, she finds no favour, there's something indecent about her, here's a certificate of divorce. And he sends her away. If that's all you have to go on, you could just take that and you could say, yeah, you can just, we can just write a divorce out. Yeah, we've got a divorce, look, divorce, there it is, divorce. We can just write a divorce. And I believe contextually that this passage in Deuteronomy 24 is a passage that speaks, as I say, of annulment, not of divorce. And what the Pharisees did is what the Pharisees always do, which is find a way to check the box and break the law. This law is not denigrating marriage. This law is not saying, you don't like your wife? Just move on and get another one. That's not what this law is saying. It's talking about a specific condition whereby someone is presented with a wife, the wife comes to the husband for the first time, and she is not what she claims to be. And it's brilliant that it comes up twice in Matthew's Gospel, where at the beginning of the Gospel we have the perfect example of this in practice. Because there is Joseph betrothed to Mary, she's his wife, And now, even before that wedding day, it becomes clear that she's pregnant. Deuteronomy 24 applies, and so Matthew is seeking to get that quiet divorce so that he can bless Mary by A, a chance to live, and B, a chance to move on and have a life and have a husband that will provide for her. Because if she can never have a husband, her life is over financially and practically and socially. And then we have, of course, in John's Gospel, the woman who'd been married five times. Well, we see that very clearly in practice, where each time a husband has said, don't want you, don't want you, don't want you, don't want you, five times. And the guy she was currently with didn't even have the decency to try and marry her. A woman was shamed in that situation. Joseph was doing good. So what did the Pharisees do? The Pharisees did this. They said, well, what does indecent mean? What does it mean? Because 
there are examples of this word. If you go back to, we won't turn there, but you go back to Deuteronomy 23, it says, look, if, if, if a guy has nocturnal emissions, yeah, it's one of those awkward chapters, if a guy has nocturnal emissions, then there's this kind of, this needs to be done, and if, you, if you're going to go to do a number two, you need to dig a hole and bury it outside the camp, not in the camp. And he says, because there must be no indecency. So it's clear that this term is a term that's just referring to something indecent, yucky, shameful, that can be used in a fairly general sense. Though even there in chapter 23, there is at least some sexual connotation. The word itself literally means a naked thing. For Jews, you know in in the Old Testament that you see sometimes the expression uncovering of nakedness? You ever read that in the Bible? If you see the expression uncovering of nakedness, you go to Christian commentaries and you say, well, what's going on here? Someone's uncovering their, their family members' nakedness. What's that all about? And they debate about it in Christian commentaries. With the Jews, it's really easy. Oh, we know what that means. It's a, it's a sexual euphemism of incest. That's what's going on there. They knew that they just, they talked in those terms. So it seems to me that in the context of Deuteronomy 24, you've just, you've been betrothed, there you are, it's the marriage night, consummation of the marriage, and something comes up that makes it clear that this person is not as chaste as you were led to believe. Right? There's something indecent. There's no way in the world that I or you or any reasonable person could think that the word indecent here means anything other than something sexual in nature. Right? I don't think that Moses' intent, as far as the man goes and his rights, was that, look, it's the wedding night, he sees his wife naked for the first time, and she's clearly four months pregnant. Right? That's what that's about. He sees his wife pregnant for the first time and she has a birthmark on her stomach. Not what it's talking about. It doesn't doesn't matter. Better or worse. And I just think we need to understand that. But the Pharisees were not righteous. They were box checkers. Check, 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 check. Don't commit adultery. Never committed adultery. And what the Pharisees did is they used the command of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 to say, oh, well, she's not very nice. That's indecent. She doesn't wash properly. That's indecent. That was used. You can find rabbinical documents that speak about accusations that a wife was not clean enough. Because Deuteronomy 23, covering up your excrement outside the camp, indecent, well, you know, that stinky smelly outside the camp, she, she maybe could shower a little bit more, stinky smelly, indecent. And then we go from a stinky, smelly wife to she doesn't keep the house clean enough. Stinky, smelly house. And we ended up in a situation where if you burnt the soup, that was indecent. The Pharisees created out of a law that was there to protect a woman 
The Pharisees created a no-fault divorce law 2,000 years ahead of us. Absolute disgrace. And what is Jesus saying in Matthew uh, 5? We'll stay in Matthew 5 now. Because I think we understand Deuteronomy 24. And what what is the context of this passage, specifically this section you have heard? It's in the context of adultery. And Jesus is saying, Jesus is is speaking to the Pharisees who will say, I've never committed adultery. And what they did is they found that the woman they'd been married to for 20, 25, 30, whatever years was now getting a little bit older. And the girl down the road looks an awful lot nicer. And he's a Pharisee. He's like the man with power. He's the man with influence. He's the man. Wow, look at him. Pharisee. Ooh, Pharisee, right? Even today you see young ladies with older men when they have enough power and money. It's an attractive thing to a woman. No judgment. That's just, that's just a reality. He's a Pharisee. And so what did they do? I find you displeasing and indecent. Have a certificate of divorce. And now I am free to go and marry another that pleases me more. What does Jesus say to that Pharisee? Adulterer. And there are Christians who live exactly the same way. And we will deal with that, the implications and the ramifications, far, far more in Matthew 19. But I want us to see what Jesus is condemning here. He's condemning people who put too little weight on the covenant of marriage by allowing, allowing divorce to happen so that they could just fulfill their desires. The whole point of marriage, the whole point of it, is to present to the world God's covenant love. Your marriage is nothing to do with your happiness. It's got nothing to do with your needs, your wants. And you choosing to get married to someone is nothing to do with a happy ever after. It's nothing to do with you being able to live the life of your dreams with the man of your dreams or the woman of your dreams. It's about making a public commitment to take one person, no matter how awful they end up being, no matter how much they change for the worse, and saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So help me God. That's marriage. And the church today is as pharisaical in this area as in any other. We have belittled the institution of marriage. We have made it small. We have made it inconsequential. And we've made it about us. Our narcissist has allowed us to think that somehow, oh well, this person made me miserable, this person did this and this person did that, and therefore, uh, you know, what can you do? I tried. If God treated us that way, how many of us would remain in Christ 
five seconds after we became a Christian. None of us, not one of us, our hearts are so desperately wicked that even after we've been declared to be righteous, we still sin and thought and word and deed. Thank God that he's faithful to us in our infidelities. Thank God that he's faithful to us when we stumble and fall. Thank God that his covenant promises never fail. And that, my friends, that is what marriage is. It's us replicating that. And so, in verse 32, when he says, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife... Except for the reason of sexual immorality. Okay, stop, pause. Is this passage speaking to the Christian church today under the new covenant? No. No. Christians are under the impression that this passage in Matthew 19 is saying, if someone cheats, you can get a divorce. I'm simply saying... It's not speaking to you. It's not saying that. What is the passage doing? We know what the passage is doing. We've been doing it all morning. What is the passage doing? It's interpreting Deuteronomy 24 the correct way because the Pharisees were interpreting it the wrong way. And they were interpreting it in a way that allowed them to say, check, I haven't committed adultery while actually breaking the righteousness of it. And the way that they were doing that is they took a law that was a law for annulment only, only in the situation where this woman was clearly not as chaste and not as, uh, uh, had sexually sinned in some way. And the word literally means the naked thing. That's the expression. It's implying it. And they, they twisted the words, they twisted the words so that they could divorce the woman for anything. And Jesus is saying, you wicked Pharisees, that law only allowed divorce, I think annulment in the context of of, uh, Deuteronomy 24. I think they call the betrothed the husband-wife. I think that the breaking of the betrothal is divorce. I think this is annulment. But he says that's only permitted in the case of sexual immorality. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the Hebrew expression and he's in its place using a Greek word, this is now in Greek in Matthew, which has very specific meaning that only revolves around sexual immorality. It is the word porneia, which is where we get our word pornography from. So Jesus is saying that only applies to that. And so, if under old covenant law, a person then said, oh, Deuteronomy 24, I'll have a divorce please. If that is not legitimate in the context of Deuteronomy 24, A, it has to be sexual immorality. And secondly, I would argue from the context of Deuteronomy 24, it would have to be right at the beginning of marriage and not just something that happens later. Though we could perhaps debate that another time. And that's why I say that's the key crux, difficult interpretive issue. When timing-wise does this apply? 
But it's only then and in that circumstance that a person is allowed by Moses to have a certificate of divorce. And if a person divorces somebody, when it's not in the context of Deuteronomy 24, under Old Covenant, they have already committed adultery. Notice that. But they haven't remarried yet. They've just divorced. Adultery. But they haven't, they haven't, they haven't been with anyone else. Adultery. How come? Because the intent is in the heart, which is the whole point of this passage. And then if someone has been divorced and you go and you marry them, then that too is adultery. Do you see how serious marriage was under the old covenant? What Christians are trying to argue today is that marriage under the old covenant which represented book of Hosea, God's love for Israel is somehow going to be a stricter thing than it will be under the new covenant when it now represents the relationship between Christ and the church. Sorry, not buying it. Simply not buying it. But we'll have to talk about that more in Matthew 19. Because that deals with it in far more detail. And Jesus in Matthew 19, although he's talking to old covenant people still, is now starting to look forwards to the new covenant and there's implications of that in the text. So we'll have to leave that for them. But let me leave you with this. Because I'm aware that there's all sorts of implications, ramifications and what have you. So let me leave you with, with a couple of things. Firstly, I am very, very aware that whether it's here now, whether it's through the live stream, whether it's on video later, audio later, I'm very aware that people hear this sermon and what have you. And it just raises all sorts of questions because we live in a society where many people who are Christians and come to church have been divorced and are remarried and, and what have you. And, and one of the questions that will come up is, particularly for people who've been remarried and they're recognizing, and again, we've only talked about the context of Deuteronomy 24, we've talked about under the old covenant, we've, we've applied it to ourselves in the sense that you mustn't have that heart, you mustn't try and find ways around the law. But there's enough that we've dealt with that many of you might have said, well, I got divorced. Maybe that was a sin. What do I now do? And my answer is, was, was given five minutes ago when I, when I railed about the seriousness of marriage. If you violated a covenant, that was a sin. Don't violate the one you're in now. That's my, that's my, my belief on what you must do. I think it's helpful, even if you've ended up in a situation that's better now, and you're glad you're where you are now, that does, that's not a contradiction to say, but I shouldn't have done what I did, and to have repentance towards that. That was something wrong, I shouldn't have done that. And what does repentance look like? Well, I won't be treating a covenant that way again. Which is seen by loving your wife as Christ loved the church, Submitting to your husband as unto Christ and committing and giving a marriage that completely looks like a biblical marriage should look like. So that's the first thing I want to want to say. 
I think the other thing I want to say is this, by way of application. Never underestimate how wicked, sneak, sneaky, snidey, tricky your hearts are. And mine. We will always find a way to be able to say, I checked the box, and do our sin in our hearts. Always, always, always. And on this issue, marriage, faithfulness, lust, sexual purity, you must not give your heart an inch. Be brutal. And how are you going to be brutal with yourself? By fighting and making lots of effort? No, we saw this last time. By considering yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I am not an old covenant believer. I am not burdened as a wretched man by these commands that I have no power to keep. I am a believer in Christ. Under the new covenant, baptized by his spirit... I died with him and I rose with him. I'm empowered by his spirit and I am able to live a life that brings him glory. My prayer this week again as last is that we would choose to live that life in the power of the Holy Spirit, which we as Christians have. Let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for... The gift of marriage to society, even if each one of us doesn't individually partake of that gift, Lord, it is a blessing to the church and to the world. May those of us who have made such a covenant, may we treasure it, may we recognize its value and its worth, and may we use it as a way to illustrate to the world around us, but also to our spouse and to those within our home, the seriousness of covenants. May we be faithful in this one as you are in yours. It's because of your covenant faithfulness that we can come to your table now. It's because of your covenant faithfulness that we can come sinners, enemies who have been declared righteous and forgiven and reconciled. We are so thankful for your grace and mercy. And as we plough through passages about law and legalism and things that in our loosened, compromised society might seem just overly strict, may we just remember, Lord, that we are to be holy as you are to be holy and that you have made that a reality by dealing with our sin at the cross giving us your spirit to live holy lives. And may we live for your glory and not for our own pleasure. Amen.